The sermon text reading is from Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom has come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The night before I began working on the series, I had a dream, and I want to share it with you. I had a dream that I had about an inch thick, full of Connect cards in my hand. And every, now standing right here, every single one of them had a prayer on them. And there were two dates. One was actually today. It said January 9th. The other one was January 24th, which is not a Sunday. It's a Monday. That's how dreams work sometimes. They don't work the way that you think they will in reality. But in the dream, it was like two Sundays, and there were so many prayers that the, the, the God's people at City Church had that I had a thick stack like this. And then the, the dream shifted to Monday morning. Maybe that's why it said January 24th. And we were ecstatic as staff because of all the different prayers that were coming in that we got to bring before the Father. You know? And I thought, how interesting. The night before I started working on the series, and I woke up saying, was that a dream or was that a vision? And I share that with you now because we are in a series, we're beginning a series today on prayer called Teach Us to Pray. And we're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer. And I know it's something that you're all familiar with, or probably most of you are at least somewhat familiar with you. If you haven't actually seen it done in a church, you've probably seen it in a movie, uh, in a Catholic church for a mass or something like that. But here's the point. I want us to engage with the question, what actually is prayer? And today what we're going to do is we're going to sort of set the table. We're looking at not only at the Lord's Prayer, but a commentary that Jesus had on the Lord's Prayer, beginning verse 5. And then subsequently, every other week after this, in the two-month series, we're going to look at a certain section of the Lord's Prayer and how it relates to another text elsewhere in the Scriptures. And here's what I want for us. Whether you are new to the faith or perhaps you're coming back to faith, Or, man, you've been doing this for decades. All of us need to learn how to pray. I need to learn how to pray still. It's like a muscle. Like when you work out, like you you don't just work out for a certain season of time and then you're done. No, you keep working out, right? Or maybe some of you are saying, man, this is crazy that we're doing this series in the beginning of the new year because one of my New Year's resolutions was on on learning how to pray or, or being more faithful in prayer as a follower of Jesus. I want you to know, welcome. We're so glad that you're here 
for this particular series that we're going to be doing. And so to this morning, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see particularly the necessity of prayer. Why is it that, that as Martin Luther said, the great reformer, he says, prayer is to our spiritual life what breathing is to existence. That's how critical it is, the necessity. And so we're going to ask a, couple, a few questions this morning. Number one, uh, who should be praying? Who's it for? Based on what Jesus said here. Number two, uh, why should we pray like this as the Lord's Prayer was given to us? Then finally, what is the power of prayer? Where does it come from? We're going to look at that as well. But let's jump in with the first thing here, and that is who should be praying. And very simply, you probably actually know the answer. Everyone. Now look at verse 1 with me. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now I know that you know that the answer to that question, oh, no surprise here, everyone, but, but no, I really mean everyone. Well, what do you mean by that, Scott? Look at the first words again, the first four words. Now, Jesus was praying. I think for a lot of us, when we think about a series on prayer, we think, okay, well, we're disciples, right? Uh, yeah, obviously, like we're dependent upon God, like we need to. Jesus was praying. And let me tell you, he wasn't praying in hopes that, well, I mean, I hope this disciples, I hope they figure this thing out here because they're the ones that really need prayer. And so I'm just going to do it to go through the motions so they can figure out they need this. No, Jesus was constantly praying out of need. Let me give you a few passages elsewhere in Luke's gospel where he's praying. This is, by the way, just tip of the iceberg. Chapter 6, verses 12 through 13. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. In other words, before he thought about, okay, disciples, who should they be? He spent the whole night in prayer, hours upon hours upon hours of praying. Chapter 10, verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed to them little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This is that vision of intimacy that he has with the Father constantly. We see this in his prayer life. And then chapter 22, verses 41 through 42. He's in the garden of Gethsemane, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In the midst of crisis, Jesus is praying. Look, I want you to underline what I'm about to say. Not necessarily physically. Well, if you were taking notes, wonderful. But mentally in your mind, I want you to underline this. Jesus was resource needy. Jesus was under-resourced. Think about that for a second. You say, whoa, whoa, Jesus is God. Yes, he's fully God, but he's fully man. He's fully human. And Jesus, when he needed to call his disciples, needed to pray to the Father. When Jesus was in a moment of crisis, the greatest crisis of all in his life, in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he goes to the cross, what is Jesus doing? He is prostrate before the Father on the ground crying out to him, look, Jesus is needy in the good sense. And if that's true about Jesus, how much more so are you and me? If Jesus needs to pray, how much more do you and I need to pray like there's no tomorrow? That's the vision in the scriptures of prayer, I believe. Now, we can easily move on to this point, saying, all right, Scott, everyone, I see your point. But 
for you and me, here's the reality. There's a gap, isn't there? There's a gap between hearing that and our actual practice of prayer, isn't it? I'm telling you, as the pastor of this church, there is a gap that I see between the vision of Jesus with prayer and the call of prayer throughout the Scriptures and my own life. And I suspect you probably are with me on that one. And so I want to address three things as to why I think there's a gap in our life between this calling, this longing, this desire for more prayer in our life, and and then our actual practice, which falls short of that. How can we name that gap? Three things. Here's the first one. I think that fundamentally, we have a flawed worldview concerning prayer. Now, here's what I mean by that. There are two fundamental ways of thinking about the world. One's called the closed universe and the open universe. If you've been here for any length of time, you've probably heard me use that language before. Let me define to you what that is. In an open universe, you believe that there's more than the physical and material world. That there's something beyond us. Now, that isn't necessarily a Christian worldview, but, but anyone who identifies themselves as religious or spiritual typically will say, yes, I believe that there's more than the physical world around me. And so in that sense, you live in an open universe. And when you live in an open universe, you believe that because there's something beyond the physical and material, that there is spirit, most people in that fundamental worldview will say, I believe in some form of prayer. You follow? But then there's a second worldview. And that is a closed universe. A closed universe says the material and physical world is all that there actually is. And when that is your fundamental worldview, it impacts prayer. Namely, it doesn't exist. There is a woman named Dana Tierney. She recently passed away tragically. But she was a writer, an essayist with the New York Times Magazine. A number of years ago, she wrote an article about, uh, uh, it was called Luke's, Uh, Sorry, it was called uh, Coveting Luke's Faith. She has a son who at the time was four years old. In 2004, she wrote an essay about watching Luke pray. Now, their father was embedded as a journalist with the U.S. Army in Iraq during the first Iraq war back in 2003 or so. And during that time, essentially, Luke was concerned about his father. And one day they're watching the news, and she looked over and she saw that, that Luke has his hands clasped like this, and he began to pray. And she looked over and she said, she said, look, what are you doing? And, and he dropped his hands real quickly. He said, nothing. And then, then a few minutes later, while the newscast was still going on, he did it again. And she looked over and says, look, what are you doing? And finally, sheepishly, he said, I'm, I'm praying. I'm praying for daddy. And she's an atheist. Now, her work, this essay that I want you to go read after today, made it into an anthology on the greatest spiritual writing. She's an atheist. And when you read the essay, you'll understand why. Because she says in the essay, at that moment, she was embarrassed for her lack of faith. And that her worldview had, had basically made her son want to hide. And she was embarrassed that he was embarrassed. And she says this in the article. She says towards the beginning of it, she says, you know, there are some people who celebrate their atheism. I am not one of them. I'm one who finds themselves not believing that there is a God, but it's not something I think to celebrate. She says this at one point in the article. My friends and relatives who rely on God, the real believers, not just the churchgoers, have an expansiveness of spirit. When they walk along a stream, they don't just see water falling over rocks. The sight fills them with ecstasy. They see a realm of hope beyond this world. I just see a babbling brook. I don't get the message. Heavens declared the glory of God. The skies proclaimed the work of His hands. 
Last night, as a family, Carly wanted to watch Interstellar. Uh, we own it. We've watched it so many times. I've seen it like five times. It's like my favorite Christopher Nolan film. Um, he's a saint of filmmaking, in my opinion. And in that film, it's uh, Interstellar. It's about space travel. It's about a lot of things. I was telling Mike this morning, it's about a lot more than science fiction. It's about actually family. It's about a father-daughter relationship at its core. But, but what's, what's beautiful about that is like this, this vision that he has of what a black hole might look like and what might happen with wormholes and things like that. And again, I've seen it like four or five times. Every single time I see it, like I started weeping because of the father-daughter relationship in particular, but also this, this expansiveness of the universe that, that he has captured as a creator of film. And, and I got in bed last night, and, and, I, and I, I was just worshiping God for black holes. And now, like, I don't want to get near one, but, but oh my gosh, how cool your universe is. Billions of galaxies. Babbling brooks. From a babbling brook to a black hole. All of creation shouts the name of God. And she's right. She feels the gap. And you might as well say that as well. And you say, no, 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 I'm, I'm not an atheist. That, that's not my, oh, but it is. You see, most of us in this room, between the Sundays in particular, we function that way, don't we? In a moment... Uh, of, uh, of, of the urgency, more on that in a second, things like that. We, we function as if it's, life is up to us. That we say we praise God here on Sundays, but then we live our lives as if we are the God that must take care of the universe between the Sundays. It's called functional deism. The idea that there must be a God, but there's no connection to the closed universe after all, you see. And so I think fundamentally there's a worldview issue. But here's the second thing. I just said that. And that is a sense of urgency. We live by the tyranny of the urgent. And so even if fundamentally it's, we have the right worldview, we act as if, as if we don't. And so what happens is that we prioritize that which gets the most attention, right? The grease, the, you know, the wheel that gets the oil that's, that's loud and noisy, that sort of thing. Like there's this sense that we've got to prioritize the things that grab our attention the most, even if they don't actually need our attention we believe that fundamentally, if we don't come through for someone, if we don't come through for the boss, if we don't come through for whatever it is, and, it, and you find yourself exhausted at the end of the day, am I right? You find yourself saying, my gosh, like I've lived life on my own today, and I'm exhausted. And what's fascinating is, and this would have been true for the life of Jesus as well in ancient Judaism, but in the ancient Christian church who took their practice from ancient Judaism, they had what were called the divine hours. Perhaps you've heard of it. And in the divine hours, they would, they would pray routinely throughout the day. And so I remember I was at the monastery of the Holy Spirit overnight uh, a couple of years ago, and, and I got up with the monks at 4 a.m. I don't normally do that. And I got up with them, and we, we prayed together in this massive uh, nave of uh, this beautiful church uh, where they worship. It looked like Notre Dame is our version of it here in the Atlanta area. And, and throughout the day, every three to four hours, they, whatever they're doing, and, and the monks do work, by the way, uh, they're not just in their cells praying all day, they, but they, they, they work and they're doing other things. They, they try to live practical lives, and suddenly when the bells chime, it's time for prayer. Why do they do that? Because they remind themselves that prayer is the priority, and the rest of they should bend towards prayer, not the other way around. And if your life is anything like mine, again, as past the church, I'm confessing now, if your life is anything like mine, sometimes the, the, the morning gets away from me. 
And suddenly I find myself just prayerless. And, and it's, a, you know, the dumpster's on fire in, in, in the household. Or, or something's, you know, putting out a fire uh, here at the church. or something else going like that. And suddenly I find myself in crisis. And rather than moving towards prayer, I'm like, what do I need to do to solve this? And, and so what I, what I think is that, that we live busy lives, but we also live with busy hearts. And you don't have to, is the point. Like, there, there can be a separation between a busy life, and I think all of us have busy lives here in the city. I, I, I get that. I understand that with where we're at in life right now. Most of us in here, I know your life. I know it's busy, and that's understandable. But we don't have to have busy hearts, and prayer addresses the busy heart, friends. You see there? But here's the third thing, the last thing, and it's what I call emotional experiences, namely this, fear, anxiety, anger. I think if I had to say, what are the three emotions in those experiences that go with them that, that keep us from prayer? It's fear, anxiety, and anger. Fear and anxiety are sort of like kissing cousins. Fear is that, that, that you know, when you're about to do the bungee jump, right? Or you're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, you're like, well, no, don't want to get any closer than that, right? Or perhaps you go home for the holidays, as some of you did recently, and, and there's trauma. There's the memories of trauma growing up, or there's current trauma. That's, that's fear, right? But what is anxiety? Anxiety is that sense of dread that you wake up with every morning. It's, it's that pit in your stomach. And you can't quite name where it's coming from. But it's there. Or maybe during the pandemic, it's a hyperarousal experience and feeling that you've been having. Every time you, you pull up social media and you see at the, at the insurrection, you know, one-year anniversary, that sort of thing, and other stuff going on in the life of our country, and the Omicron variant, all these different things, and, and you, can feel, you can feel this anxiety welling up in you. Not necessarily fear, but anxiety. And there's the third one, anger. And let me tell you, over the holidays, I mean, I was on an emotional roller coaster with a lot of, this, a lot of these different things. And, and I, I remember at one point, I, I, was, I was just I was walking in my mother-in-law's neighborhood down in Florida where we were at, and I went spent a whole day basically just in this place of anxiety with some, with some stuff going on. And finally, the next morning, I, I went for this walk, and I just I, I finally spoke to God about it. I just gave it to Him, and it was like a dam burst in my heart. And the anxiety went out with it. And, and I began to have confidence again that, that God's got this, even though I don't. And then a couple of days later, I, I got to do something I rarely get to do. And I was in another church where I, no one needed anything from me. And I didn't have to preach a sermon. I was at my mother-in-law's church, and I was listening to this guy preach instead. And, and he was talking in his message about moving from fear to faith. And like the Holy Spirit got hold of me. I was like, yes. I was like, I want that in the new year. Like church finances, other stuff like not living in, in fear or anxiety about those things, but living by faith and and dealing with places of anger and, and sadness in my heart and so forth. What about you here in the new year? What do you hear in all of that? Worldview, tyranny of the urgent, emotional experiences. I bet every single one of you in here can say, I'm there. I find myself there in one of those things. And what's interesting is, in verse 1, it says that the disciples watched Jesus pray. Well, you know what that means? It means that Jesus was modeling prayer. And the disciples say, I want to make that the rhythm of my heart. I remember right after Kirsten and I got married in the neighborhood where we were living at the time, about three doors down from us, a father was mowing his lawn. And 20 paces behind him was his three- to four-year-old son with a toy mower mowing right behind him. 
it was one of the most like ah moments I've ever had in my life. And I didn't even have kids at the time, and I was just I was like, oh my gosh, that's beautiful in the world. And uh, and I think, man, isn't that sort of what Jesus is saying here? I want you to follow right behind me and do what I'm doing. And and the, and the joy and the confidence and security that I have in my life can be yours, he says. And so how do we get there? If you're saying you're this morning, that's what I want, how do we get there? Here's the second thing, and that is why this prayer. There are three things I want you to see in this prayer. Number one is to get God, not his things. It is to get God himself. Verse 2, and he said to them, when you pray, say, Father... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Now, we're going to talk each week about each section of the prayer. Next week, we're going to be depth. We're going to do a deep dive here on what does it mean that we have a father. But let me say just a couple things here. The very first word that Jesus says in his prayer is father. It's not God, generic. It's father. That's incredibly important here. What God is saying, what Jesus is saying here, is that you have a God who is a father. In other words, that, that when you pray, you're not just praying generically out there to an impersonal force. Or even if you believe that God is personal, as most of us do, like God is father. And what's in, interesting is the word here in the Aramaic, which is the spoken language of the Jews of that day, it isn't formal father, but it's Abba, which means daddy. It's the word that would be used by a young child as they, at two in the morning, go into the bedroom where mom and dad are, and they ask for a drink of water at two in the morning. It's not, Father, this is possible. It's, Daddy, I need a drink. You see the difference there? How many of us, when we pray, have that sense in our spirits that we have a daddy who longs to get up in the middle of the night to bring us a glass of water? And the commentary that we're going to look at in a second, beginning of verse 5, is all about that, by the way. But we have a father here. And part of that is a sense of dependency. Just like when my kids ask me for things, part of what was beautiful about that is even if I don't give them what they need, or excuse me, what, what they think they need, but I give them what I believe that they need in, in my parental wisdom, or mom does the same thing, like we engage in intimacy. We, we begin a conversation around the things that they're wanting. And it leads to greater intimacy. That's part of what prayer is. But part of that is that sense of dependency, like our children have on us, those of us who are parents, is saying, man, I, I have needs and only you can meet them. Listen to what Paul Miller in a work called A Praying Life, some of you will remember that three years ago in our small groups, we actually went through this all together as a church family. What do I lose when I have a praying life? Control. Independence. What do I gain? Friendship with God, a quiet heart. The living work of God in the hearts of those I love. The ability to roll back the tide of evil. Essentially, I lose my kingdom and get his. I move from being an independent player to a dependent lover. I move from being, listen to it, an orphan to a child of God. I know that most of you would say, I know that I have a father in heaven. I know that that I'm not an orphan. But I've been doing this for 20 years. And I know that for a lot of you, there's a gap between the idea that God is Father and your experience in your heart. And I think the reasons for that, part of that is your earthly father relationship. For those of you who have hard earthly father relationships, it's going to be really hard for you to see that God is a good Father. Let's just be honest. It takes work. It takes a commitment spiritually. 
to say, I need to work through those things, that, that there actually is a true father relationship. That, you know, and all of us don't have perfect fathers, but some of us have fathers that's more traumatic than others. I get that. We're going to talk about more about that next week in particular. But my longing for you is that you would see that, 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 that God is Father is the beginning point of intimacy. But it leads here to the second thing, I think. And that is, why do we pray? Because we have a tremendously great needs. Look at verses 3 and 4. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us of our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Here's what's fascinating. Jesus says, look, it's not just praise be to God. It's also, look, I have these daily needs. And so the daily bread. And again, we're going to talk about that later on as well. But then right after that, what does he say? He says, oh my gosh, look at the Not just the physical needs, but also the spiritual needs. Spiritual bread, of course, of course as well. But also relational, emotional needs. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive those who are indebted. Jesus is saying, look, look, if you have any relationship, if you're a human being, in other words, you need prayer because you cannot work through that relationship with your coworker, with your parents, with your children, with your spouse, with your friends. No matter who it is, you cannot possibly get through that relationship without experiencing conflict. And you cannot work through that conflict well without submitting yourselves in prayer. That's why Jesus includes that. The one prayer. Jesus, you got one shot of this. And what are you going to teach the disciples? And what does he say? Relational reconciliation is critical to prayer. Let me tell you, when I've been in conflict with friends and colleagues over the years, and it works, not works, they're found as if it's some like tool, but, but it happens every time. When I begin to pray for those I'm in conflict with, I am overwhelmed with compassion for them. Every single time, I'm overwhelmed with compassion and compassion for myself. Kindness towards myself and kindness towards them. You know why? Because I realize that, well, my gosh, I, I need to give them compassion because why I've been given so much compassion and kindness from the Father. And so it follows, Father, and then he continues on here. And if I had time, and again, another week we'll talk about temptation as well. But I want you to see, like, our needs are so great. In fact, that's what verses 5 and following are all about. This is his commentary saying, you want to see how great your need is? Listen to verses 5 through 8. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything, I tell you. Though he will not get up and give you anything because he's a friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now here's what that means. It means not that God is the annoying friend or the friend who gets annoyed. More on that here in a second. But what he is saying is you go to God with impudence. Here's what impudence means. Impudence is recognizing desperation and it moves you to commit an act that might otherwise be considered a social faux pas. And so going to your neighbor at midnight would be considered a social faux pas. Why would you do it? And Jesus is saying the only reason why you would do that is that you are so desperate in your need that you have nowhere else to turn to. And so you turn, especially in that culture where hospitality is everything, there's a responsibility that you have to care for your neighbor. Jesus is saying the same thing here. How much more so God, who's not an annoying neighbor, but his father, in fact, how much more so your need. In fact, in verses 9 through 10, right after this, 
Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock. And what's interesting there, and, and maybe it's interesting because Mike and I have been in seminary classes, and we rarely ever talk about the Greek, the tense of verbs and things like that, but I'm going to do it right now. It's called the present imperative. Ask, seek, knock. And what that means is it's essentially what Paul says later on, pray without ceasing. In other words, you don't just ask once, seek, knock. You're, you're doing it constantly. Like your whole life is about this. Like whenever you're faced with a crisis, whenever you're faced with any decision point, ask, seek, knock is what he's saying there. That's how great our need is. Every day, every moment. And the last thing, at least that, is this. Yes, our need is great, but God is good. Look at verses 11 through 13. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? It is possible, and for those of us who gathered with others for the holidays, you know this. It's possible to overeat. It's possible to overdrink. You can even overexercise. Did you know that? You know, you can do all those things. Somebody's like, thank God, you're telling me not to exercise. No, that's not what I said. You can over-exercise. Basically, any good thing, you can put the word over to it, and it'll be overkill. But the one good thing you cannot over is prayer. You cannot over-pray, because you have a Father who's good. And He says that if you ask, He will open the door. Seek, knock. He's there. He wants to be present with you. He will never be the annoyed neighbor. You cannot, you can never go before the father and say, look, this may not be a good time for you. That'll never happen. Don't you know that right now, as we sit here, God, the father, maker of the black holes and the babbling brooks is longing for you right now. And as soon as you open up in a second, we're going to pray and confession. Like when you do that, he is there. And he's longing for you. And he is excited that, that his daughter is there, that his son is there. He's so excited that you are there. And I, don't, I think a lot of us in here, myself included, we have a hard time grasping that for a lot of different reasons. Again, earthly relationships. But I want you to know that that is your God who is your Father. And Jesus is revealing who he is through prayer to you. He is good. And, and he longs for you just to trust him. Say, bring anything and everything to me. One of the worst things that you can do is say, well, I, I don't know if, if this is really worthy of prayer. Oh, it is. Paul Miller really opened my eyes that in praying life. There's nothing beyond prayer. The issue is not the size of the ask. It's the motivation of the ask. That's the key. It doesn't matter what it is. If the motivation of your heart is towards God, godliness and righteousness, God wants to hear about it. Even if it's trying to find your missing iPhone. Like he longs for you to say, Bring it to me. For I'm the one who spun the stars into space. Don't you know that I care for you? And so at least the last thing here. This is where we close. Then where does the power of prayer come from? If we have a good father who wants to give us good gifts, he says the greatest gift is the Holy Spirit, which leads here to the last point. Where's the power coming from? And the answer is triune God himself. Not just generic God, but Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We've already talked about Father. I'm going to talk about it a lot more next week. But, you, but it's Father who has power. It's the strong man, so to speak. It is one who, who, again, spun the stars into heaven, who says, I have the power to fulfill godly requests. I want to do it for the sake of my kingdom and for the sake of your heart. 
But it isn't just that. He says there in verse 13, Jesus does, that the greatest gift of all is the Spirit. Did you see that? And what is the Spirit? The Holy Comforter. The one who comforts our heart when we're in places of pain, in places of suffering, in the places where we're saying, I don't know what's going to happen in my marriage. I don't know what's going to happen in my singleness, my career, whatever it might be, whatever it is that I'm facing. The Spirit intercedes for us. Next week, we're going to look at Romans chapter 8. And it says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. It brings our, our, our groans and our requests, it brings them to the, to the Father. Like it makes them, makes them intelligible, we might say. The power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that right now, as you feel your faith, not just know your faith theologically, but you feel your faith, you experience your faith, you feel oneness with the Father, it's the Holy Spirit at work in you, friends. But it's the last part, Jesus the Son. See, Jesus didn't just say, pray for your daily bread. What did he say later on? I am the bread of life. He says, you pray for your daily bread, I am the bread. And when he says, begin your prayer this way, Father, you know what's true about Jesus? Every single prayer where Jesus prays, you'll see it over and over and over again. He begins his prayer, Father, Abba, Daddy. There's an exception to that. You know when it is? The cross. And on the cross, Jesus doesn't pray, Father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why at that moment of greatest crisis when he's about to die, the death on the cross, does he switch his language? And here's why. The Father had turned His face away from His Son. The face of love, the face of kindness, the face of mercy. He turned His face away from His Son. Why? Because Jesus took our sin upon Himself. And in the Father's holiness, there was separation between the Son and the Father. Why? So that you and I would no longer be separated from God and we can now call Him Father. That's the resource of prayer. Jesus went to the cross and was willing to be forsaken by the Father so that you and I would be able to access whenever we need it at any hour of the day, access the gifts that we have in Him spiritually. And so, here's, here's where I come back to the dream where I began at the beginning. With, this is the last thing I'm going to say. I have this dream for our church. I have this vision for our church that we will see the mighty wonders of God on display right here in our city, right here in our church family, the people around us will say, my gosh, who is your God? I want to know what is happening. I want to see the mighty wonders of God done in us and through us. I want us to be able to tell stories every week about the power and the mighty work of God individually and collectively as a church family. And some of the initiatives that we're doing, Megan just spoke about one of them, the prayer room. I, I want to see that room filled up. I, I want to see all those dots on on the board, all around the world, how we're praying for our church family around the world, not just the churches that we have supported, but, but just the, the persecuted uh, family of God and those where we're planting churches. And I want us to pray in that way. Then all the different individual requests that go on that board and all these things, I want us to, to be able to join ourselves in prayer on a regular basis like that. And then in a few weeks, more information to follow. We're going to begin an opportunity on Sunday evenings to pray together. And some of you are saying, I, I've never prayed with other people before. Come and listen. Come, come and see. Come and see. Lord, teach us to pray. Watch the family of God pray. Let's join together our voices and ask God for the nations. Let's ask God for change in our marriage and our singleness and our relationships and our sexuality and so forth. Let's ask God for those things this year. And then uh, part of my vision this summer was 
was that when I went away from my study leave and I really felt like God was calling us to prayer in the new year, was I had this vision that we would join together with churches across uh, ethnic lines, theological lines, that we would unite together for prayer periodically, nights of worship and prayer. And so I brought that before some other friends and pastors here in the city. We now have about five or six churches that have said yes to that. And so and in the space of a, a few weeks here, probably towards the end of February, early March, we're going to have our first night of worship and prayer. We're hosting it here, and there are going to be a lot of other churches in here with us. And we're going to worship God. We're going to pray, and we're going to ask for the world. We're going to ask big. Go big or go home. And so I want you to be part of that with me. I want you to say, man, I want something different in my life for my family, for myself in 22 and beyond. The kingdom of God is advancing, friends. The kingdom of God is not done with city church. God is not done with this world. You just wait and see. And so let's leverage this series for the next two months. And let's, let's lean into it saying, God, have my life. Take my life, as we sang earlier, and let it be consecrated, Lord, unto thee. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this model prayer. And Lord, out of this prayer, teach us how to pray in the next two months. Here, teach us, teach us how to lean into places of weakness where we want to go further up and further in with you, but we're afraid. Or we just don't know how to do it. So Lord, teach us what does it look like to actually pray beyond our basic needs. I feel like sometimes, Father, we know how to ask for those basic things, but we don't know how to get you. And we don't know how to feel connected to you as a father. We don't know how to, how to have intimacy with you the way that, that you designed this to be. Father, there's so many barriers, some of which we've already talked about. Lord, help us see those barriers and, and help us turn those barriers back over to you. Lord, have mercy upon us. Father, Daddy, have mercy upon us. Thank you for the Son, the grace from the cross, the empty tomb. Holy Spirit, empower us in prayer in the days to follow. We pray this in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Now we're going to continue in worship through confession.